Okay then, so this will be our second outreach this year, and for those of us which were able to come together in February, we were successfully and very much blessed to gather in Oxford to get the word of God out, to give up many tracks. Of course it was colder back in February, but uh, we pushed on and the word of God went out and the banner was seen by many. And here we are, June 2017, in the beautiful city of Cambridge, the city of academia. And last night Patrick and I went for a quick look around the town, the city, to see what it's all about. And I thought a couple of things. I thought, number one, that if you don't have the money, you couldn't study here. Sure, you get scholarships, but even with scholarships, you need money to go on excursions. You need money for this, money for that. Number two, if you don't have the brains, you couldn't come here. You wouldn't be able to get past the exams. So it's kind of elitist. And yet when it comes to salvation, thankfully, it's not elitist. When it comes to having a relationship with the Lord, it's all about grace. I also thought that there is quite a bit of poverty in this city, like Oxford. So it's very much a two-tier system. You've got the cream of the crop. You've got the brides of the brights. You've got the brains of the brains. You've got future prime ministers here, future uh, kings and queens and VIPs. And for some of those people, they come from very privileged backgrounds, presidents, uh, ex-presidents, of course. But the, cra- the crowd that are here now, the future generation that are here now, are the brains that are going to come down the line and like I say, they come from privileged backgrounds. So we will do what we can. We will spread out today and tomorrow. We are here for the next 10 days. No real uh, overall feeling as to how it's going to go. We are optimistic, of course. It could go either way. We could come up against the wall of apathy. On top of that, we had the uh, terror attacks last month in Manchester, which, of course, left 22 people dead. And in the days after that, we were busy in uh, Cheshire, another parts of the northwest no real uh, feeling of concern no over feeling of anxiety armed police yes on the streets soldiers on the streets of london but no problem for us we had some good conversations and uh, i will discuss some of those conversations probably during our sunday service so the work goes on the ministry pushes on we have uh, more people to join us in the coming days but for now it is down to us to start our outreach in earnest and what i want to try and do for today lord willing is look at the subject of dreams we all have dreams i can remember one of the first dreams i ever had i was about 10 or 11 and i dreamt there was some kind of explosion in the sky planets on fire meteorites this and that never forgot it it may have been nothing but it stayed in my mind 10 11 12 and it was like some kind of an explosion had taken place and obviously over the years I've had more intense dreams most of the dreams I have are difficult to explain I guess it's like uh, if we think of a hard drive you get a hard drive and you shake it really hard that's what our brains are like we see so much in a typical 24-hour day in fact just last week I was thinking that 100 years ago back in 1917 there was no television there was no cinema there was no internet the average lifespan of a man was 42, not much uh, less for a woman in the UK. And you worked five, probably six days a week. Sunday was the Lord's Day. You put your Sunday best on. You went to church or chapel in the morning. 
and you came out and you walked around the park with your wife or wife-to-be or what have you, just taking the scenery. You didn't see much. Of course, there was still sin, there was still depravity, we know that. But today, today, you see so much online. If you go on to uh, the Daily Mail's website, for example, the most read news website in the world, there is all sorts of stuff on the uh, Mail's website, which just 10 years ago would have been unheard of. And you see stuff, it stays in your mind, it registers with you, and you go to sleep at the end of the day, and it's all in your mind. And as I say, your brain is like this massive hard drive, and you think, what a strange dream, I dreamt I was here, I dreamt I was there, I dreamt I saw him, I dreamt I saw her. And your mind just struggles to digest it, to compartmentalize it. So it's not surprising that we have more psychiatrists today, more psychologists today, more suicides today. It's not surprising at all. In fact, most psychiatrists are prone to depressions, uh, anxiety attacks, and I'm also told that the uh, suicide rate is very high concerning the medical profession. Think if you're a psychiatrist, for example, or you're a psychologist, and you've got people coming to you all day long, offloading onto you. It's going to make you just flip yourself. I mean, let's say you're a priest, for example, you're a Catholic priest, and you've got people coming to you every day of the week, knocking on your door at four in the morning or five in the morning, or going into your confession booth to confess their sins to you, which isn't scripture, of course, and you've got that going on every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year, year in, year out. I mean, talk about burnout. Talk about being worn down with people's problems. So I'm not surprised that priests burn out. I'm not surprised that psychiatrists and psychologists commit suicide. It's not normal to overly offload onto people. Yes, you uh, share your faults with people, but like I said last Sunday, you don't confess your sins to one another. We're not Catholics. So let's try and start in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, an Old Testament book written by Moses. And like I say, this may perhaps perhaps be a two-part study. I don't know. And if it is, then I guess part two will be looking at visions. But for part one, I just want to have a crash course look at dreams. Because it would appear to me that the Lord's number one way of revealing himself to people would be through dreams. He could have just created the world and step back and allow it to run itself. But of course, it's not how the Lord would operate. He is what we call a hands-on person. Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12, look, if you will, please, at verse 6. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. So it's going to be a vision or a dream. He would speak back in the Old Testament to Abraham, for example, face to face. Moses, face to face. He would come down and speak to Samuel as a young man face to face. He would speak to Solomon face to face. And I believe that to be a Christophany. I know some people think that God the Father has revealed himself in physical form to people. I don't necessarily go for that. I think looking at scripture... Uh, especially the Gospel of John, where Jesus says how no man has seen the Father, uh, it's more likely that Christ has appeared in spiritual form. And as I say, we call that a Christophany. I, the Lord, being Jehovah, being Elohim, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. It's going to start with dreams. It's going to start with visions. 
Sure, he will meet people face to face. He would meet Abraham face to face. He would leave heaven and come to earth with two angels. Could be Michael, uh, could be Gabriel, we don't know. But nevertheless, he would take initiative to leave heaven and come to earth. He would do the same with Adam and Eve. It says how they heard the Lord walking in the cool of the day. And the Lord would call out to Adam, where art thou? Picturing the truth that salvation is of the Lord. But here, if there be a prophet among you, and around this time, the Jews had had several prophets. I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. So the context has been set. The rules have been laid out that if the Lord wants to make himself known to people, he would do so via dreams and visions. Go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Now for today, we take the scripture as our final authority. We don't need to worry about dreams and uh, or people being shown things via dreams or claiming to have received visions. A lot of what you read about online, a lot about what you see online is mainly from the flesh. People thinking that God has appeared to them or wanting to believe that God has appeared to them. But this is a great scripture from Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 1, please. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, or purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So, the writer is telling us, it could be Paul, it may not be Paul, that God, verse 1, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, different ways, different times, spake, in time past, unto the fathers by their prophets, going back to Numbers chapter 12, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So already it's in the past tense. He's spoken to us in his son. And it's very hard to improve on what Jesus has told us. It's very hard to, for example, speak to a Muslim and say, well, Muhammad said A, B, and C, but Jesus has told us X, Y, and Z. It's very difficult to build. It's very difficult to improve on what Jesus has already told us. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. That's pretty incredible. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If you saw Jesus Christ in the flesh, you got a glimpse of the Father, of the Spirit. Of course, Jesus is not the Spirit. He's not the Father. But he is a representation of the Godhead. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Going back to let there be life, there was life. Uh, you want to be healed? You can be healed. You want to be saved? Believe on me. You want to be healed of your leprosy, of your uh, blindness, of this or that? It will be done. When he had by himself purged our sins. Now this is a great scripture for the Catholics to read and accept. When he had by himself, or excuse me, when he had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, go back to the Old Testament. You think of the priests in the temple. You think of the priests 
sacrificing day and night animals on behalf of the children of Israel. They never sat down because it was an ongoing sacrifice. Jews were bringing their animals to be sacrificed because they were in need of an atonement. They were in need of a covering. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Numbers 12, God is making it clear that he will probably take one or two options to reveal himself to people, visions or dreams. Yes, of course, sometimes appearing in the flesh, but fast forward to Hebrews, one of the last books in the New Testament. The context is switched to has or hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So we don't expect further revelations. We don't expect further visions. It is fair to say that we could sit down like we are this morning and read the scripture and get some new light on a verse. That's true. It's possible that one of the brothers around the table this morning could offer uh, a fresh look at a verse, of course. But new revelations per se, new visions per se, building on the scriptures as such would be unlikely because the word of God is our final authority. So God has spoken to us via his son and that will be sufficient for these last days. Prior to that, he has spoken by the fathers, being the prophets back in the Old Testament. On top of that, Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Also picturing the fact that there's only one God, that there's only one way to be redeemed, which most people can't stand. They want to believe there are many ways. But go back to Cambridge, go back to Oxford, for example. You want to study at Oxford, you want to study at Cambridge. Okay, fine. Number one, can you afford the tuition fees? Number two, can you afford the excursions, textbooks? Number three, are you bright enough? If you're not bright enough, if you're not wealthy enough, you ain't going to go anywhere, as they say. There are rules, there is a criteria to be met when it comes to entering Cambridge or Oxford. The same is true of salvation. You want to be saved, you have to go through a person. People don't seem to kick against uh, higher education in this country, they accept it as they would do in countries around the world. And when it comes to salvation, when it comes to religion, when it comes to our relationship with the one true God, people seem to want to deviate from what has been laid out in Scripture. They don't like the idea that there are rules. But here, Hebrews 1, 2, 3 and 4, sets the pace that the Son of God is higher than the angels, that he has received a name which is more excellent than the angels. Also feed them back into the Old Testament that sometimes God would speak to people via angels. If you think of Islam, they believe that uh, angels were told to worship Adam. And yet Adam is just a created being. Whereas Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. Go to Matthew chapter 1 please. So I sat down a week ago and I read through the New Testament. And I wanted to count how many dreams there are. In the New Testament. And I thought there were more than I realized. And if you want to know about dreams. If you want to know about visions. I will say this. That Matthew's gospel alone tells you about dreams. And only Matthew's gospel alone. 
Luke speaks about some visions, whereas John doesn't speak about visions. Mark doesn't speak about visions. So it's going to be Matthew and it's going to be Luke. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, look if you will please at verse 20. But while he thought on these things concerning Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, the four Gospels, technically, yes, they fall into the New Testament, of course, but at the same time, they come under the Old Covenant, because Christ hasn't yet died. The Jews are still living under the Old Testament. The Jews are still sacrificing animals. The Jewish men are still being circumcised. They are still observing dietary restrictions. It says over in Matthew 27 how they kept the commandment, being the Sabbath. And after the Sabbath had concluded, they went to the tomb. There was a sense that we have to observe the Mosaic Covenant, because if we don't, we could be put to death. They were living under a theocracy. So here the Lord has decided to reveal himself to Joseph via an Old Testament way, an Old Testament method. But while he thought on these things concerning verse 18, concerning verse 19, concerning his wife-to-be being with child, behold, the angel of the Lord. Now, this could be a Christophany. Back in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, Jehovah's messenger, was nearly always Jesus Christ. But here, and also if you think of the account from uh, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10 could more likely be in reference to the Holy Spirit. Some switch has taken place. The angel of the Lord, could be the Spirit of God, like I say, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, he's in the Messianic line, as would be Mary, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Now they are engaged, so technically they are married, and yet he hasn't they haven't yet uh, consummated the marriage, but nevertheless, they are technically man and wife through their engagement. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Going back to the virgin birth, of course, which sets Christ apart from everyone else. When you think of anyone who has ever lived or will ever live, the truth of the matter is they're no different to you and I. In fact, we spent, what, 20 minutes this morning looking up dead apostate theologians from Europe, from Germany, from uh, Holland, such people wouldn't be known by most people in Christendom, and yet some of these people have written dozens upon dozens of volumes about the Bible, books about the Bible, and yet if you had a flashlight, you couldn't find the plan of salvation. It's about theories, it's about philosophies, it's about hypotheses. There's no clear definition as to how to be saved. So here, Almighty God, via the Spirit of God, has appeared to Joseph, as he sleeps, and he wants to make it clear to Joseph that Mary is with child, that she has conceived through the Spirit of God. It's a miracle, going back to Isaiah, and he is now being minded that she's not just an ordinary woman, but she is with child. Look at verse 21, please. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus being Jehovah saves, and Jesus will save his people, being the Jews, first of all, from their sins, and secondly, the Gentiles. In fact, our discussion this morning 
And also last night, surrounded a text from uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus said that he had uh, sheep from another flock. And the uh, definite or the interpretation of that verse was that it was in reference to aliens, Martians, which is ridiculous. In fact, the Mormons believe that such a text is in reference to themselves. I have sheep that are of another flock. Now, just very quickly, John chapter 10, and forgive me for the paraphrase, is in reference to the Gentiles eventually coming into the church. Up until this piece of time in the Lord's ministry, Jesus is a Jew dealing with the Jews. Going back to what I said a few moments ago, the Gospels are technically Old Covenant teachings, or the material found in the four Gospels concerns the Old Covenant. So the text from John 10 is in reference to future believing Gentiles. I'll have believing Jews, I'll have believing Gentiles, there'll be one flock, I'm the shepherd. That's all there is to it. It's not in reference to aliens, it's not a reference to Martians, it's not a reference to Mormons, it's not a reference to any non-human entity. It's in reference to the Gentiles. And such a text gets twisted and destroys the minds of many people. But here Jesus will save his people, being the Jews, if they believe on him. The Gentiles, if they believe on him, because he has come to die for the sins of the world. And this statement was given to Joseph. It could have been at three o'clock in the morning when we are all in a deep sleep. And it must have shocked him. I would imagine this was the first dream he'd ever had from the Lord on this uh, magnitude. And Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a godly man. Joseph was a little bit older than Mary. And therefore what he has been shown, what has been revealed to him, must have blown him away. 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Last week, I came across a clip online concerning a well-known Baptist evangelist. I shan't name him. And he was giving a talk somewhere in America. And he hit this verse. And he made a slight uh, error, shall we say. And he made the impression, or the impression was given based on what he said, that somehow Joseph and Mary made a mistake which is obviously incorrect because Jesus has two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, Emmanuel being God with us. Now, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. Also cross-referencing back to the book of Ezekiel, the branch, the Lord is here. God has many names. So yes, he was named Emmanuel, and he would have been called Emmanuel, but at the same time, he's called Jesus. So let's look at it this way. Jesus is the name of our Lord for the church age. Emmanuel is the name of our Lord for the millennium. Two names, one person. Or you could suggest it this way, the God-man. Jesus, of course, is a human name. Emmanuel is a divine name. Jesus denotes the Son of Man, if you want. Emmanuel denotes Son of God. It goes both ways. In fact, somebody left a comment to one of my videos saying that I got it wrong, that the Son of Man is his deity and the son of god is his humility it goes both ways son of god could be divine son of man could be his humility or vice versa it doesn't make any difference but here joseph has been told about mary so on and so forth how she'll bring forth a son 21 how he will save his people 22 23 matthew wants you to know that this goes back to the old testament which 
if you think of other so-called holy books, they haven't got the Old Testament and the New. They haven't got one part pointing to the, the New or the New pointing back to the Old. They are trusting in one source alone, which, of course, is problematic. Because if you think of Muhammad, for example, who was illiterate, you've got one man, according to Islam, who spoke to his daughter over a period of time, who wrote down what her father told her, then dictated it to a guy called Uthman, who wrote the Quran. And even that is problematic, because most scholars now believe that the Quran was written 200 years later, after the death of Muhammad. So you've got a guy who can't even read or write, apparently dictating his revelations to his daughter, who then sits down with Uthman, or Uthman, who then writes down the Quran, which is then heavily edited. On top of that, it takes place 200 years after the death of Muhammad. Yet with the New Testament, you've got eyewitnesses writing about the Lord pre-75 AD, excluding Revelation, of course. 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did, as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and you are not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph was a good man, not sinless, of course, but he knew that his wife, or his wife-to-be, was a good girl, and I would suggest she was around 14 to 16. We know that back in the first century, Jewish women married young, as did Jewish men. So for Jesus and John the Baptist to be in their 30s and not married, not to have children, was somewhat unusual. Not unheard of, but it was unusual. Joseph has now been raised from sleep and he's done as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, had commanded him and took unto him his wife, and you are not to she have brought forth her firstborn son, which would seem to suggest to me that she had more than one child. And he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. Now the cross-reference is Luke chapter 1 to this account. And in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel pays a visit to Mary and explains to her what's going on. She would have been excited and also somewhat apprehensive as to what was taking place. And she would have thought when Gabriel appeared to her that this was prophecy being fulfilled, going back to the book of Isaiah. Very excited and yet very apprehensive. Not overly sure how this was going to be received. Would her parents accept it? Would her parents be believers that their daughter, their young daughter, their virgin daughter was about to give birth to the Son of God? But it wasn't just enough to make that clear to Mary. The Lord wanted to make uh, make it clear to Joseph as well. But what really interests me here is Mary is visited by Gabriel, an angel, an archangel, a created being, whereas Joseph gets to have a, have a, have a revelation from the Spirit of God. So you've got the third member of the Trinity visiting Joseph, Gabriel visiting Mary. And yet the Catholics would, would mix it all up. They'd say, no, no, the Spirit of God visited Mary because she's a queen of heaven, and Joseph got to have a meeting with Gabriel. But that's not what the scripture says. The Spirit of God, if I'm understanding this correctly, would take the time to visit Joseph. And Gabriel, a created being, would be sent to visit Mary. Two different people. Gabriel for Mary, the Spirit of God for Joseph. So Matthew 1, verses 20 down to 25, will be our first accounts of anyone in the New Testament. And there aren't many people in the New Testament that would receive revelations via a dream. Most of what we read about in the New Testament concerns Christ on the earth in physical form. In fact, if you think of the unpardonable sin for one moment, he says over in uh, 
uh, Mark chapter 3, that whoever blasphemes the uh, Holy Ghost is in danger of eternal damnation. And that verse terrifies people. But it goes on to say, because they said he had an unclean spirit. And I've always believed that the unpardonable sin can't be committed today because Christ isn't physically on the earth. If you are on the earth, it's the first century, you are watching Jesus day in, day out. You are seeing the miracles day in, day out. You are hearing the preaching day in, day out. And you say, that's being done by the devil. Perpetually, then of course you can't be saved because there's no other way to be saved. Going back to Hebrews, if we sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sins. Which perhaps could feed into our Revelation passage, which we'll look at over the next several days. So I'm not concerned about the unpardonable sin, because I don't think that is in reference to anyone living today. In fact, Paul was a murderer. Not directly, but indirectly. He got saved. Many people got saved and came to the Lord later in life. So there's always hope. And I think we've gone over time for this morning. So we'll stop it there. And this will be part one, it would appear. And perhaps there could be a three-parter to this. I don't know. But just very briefly, just to, uh, just to quickly recap, that God would create the world, of course, reveal himself to the world. He would do so via dreams and visions. He would also do so in a physical sense. And I guess it's also fair to say that had you lived back in the Old Testament, you may have wondered whether or not you were actually receiving divine revelations. It may have been possible that some of the greats thought that perhaps a devil was appearing to them. But I think it's more likely that had we met the Lord back in the Old Testament, had we seen the Lord back in the Old Testament, had we had a dream about the Lord, like Joseph, we would have known it was from the Lord. Going back to the transfiguration, when uh, Moses and Elijah would appear with Jesus up on the mounts, and the apostles said, hey, there's Moses, there's Elijah. There wasn't any confusion as to who these guys were. And of course, back in those days, there, was no, there were no paintings, there were no pictures. They knew. We will know in eternity who is who. Which also goes back to the Gospel of John again, that you know we hear the Lord's voice. If a stranger comes, we won't follow him. We might temporarily deviate from the Lord, of course. We might temporarily get into error. But ultimately, once we are saved, we are kept saved. And we won't, I don't think anyway, permanently stray from the Lord because we belong to him. But I will come back tomorrow, Lord willing, and further discuss uh, the subject of whether or not a spirit could deceive us, could seek to counterfeit uh, the Lord revealing himself to those that are going to be saved or those that are going to do great things for him. So I hold it there at the end of Matthew chapter 1, and tomorrow I pick it up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 2. Okay, so this will be day two of our trip to Cambridge, and yesterday we were able to work the streets for several hours. It was somewhat slow to start off with. Heavy rain, but after a coffee break, a guy came over to us, very angry, uh, quite a ferocious onslaught. It's been a long time since someone spoke to us like that, pretty much accusing us of everything under the sun. And yet, had we been communists, he wouldn't have dared suggest uh, some of the things he suggested. Had we been Muslims, he wouldn't have dared suggest some of the things that he suggested. And had we been, I don't know, Hindus, Sikhs, Freemasons, what have you, I doubt he would have come over and given us a second glance. But that's how it goes. You were told to turn the other cheek, not only in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. On top of that, he wasn't listening to us. And therefore, when people start dictating terms to us, 
why should we uh, rise to the bait? And I said to him, what the scripture says, don't cast your pearls before swine. The scripture says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. I won't have some guy dictate to me on his terms as to how the conversation should go. It was more of statement after statement being made, nothing to do with actual questions as such. So we have arrived, and therefore for today I want to return to the subject of dreams and say this, that we all have dreams, but we don't always remember them, and that's very much the case. And I was told just shortly, uh, before we sat down to start recording, that Lincoln had a dream slash premonition that he would be dead within a week and he told his wife who was very superstitious who was known to consult clairvoyances that uh, such statement was made to her and it kind of shook her up because like I say she's very superstitious and lo and behold within a week of his dream slash premonition he was dead many people have dreams like I say but not always remember them I remember some years ago we knew a catholic priest who was on his uh, way from A to B and as he was crossing a very busy road a car came down the street crashed into him he went 30 feet up in the air crashed down an ambulance was called for he was rushed to the hospital and people thought he was going to die an operation or two later he came through and recovered but he was forever changed he lost 70% of his speech half his face was all smashed up he was in a bad way and he would have very bad dreams he'd have nightmares he would suffer depressions as a result of his car incident. Had we been saved around the time that we knew him, who knows what would have happened. But he was 50 years a priest, and within just five minutes his life was forever changed. He may have been of the opinion that he would have been better off dead. I know people that suffer that kind of uh, incident wish they had died. But uh, he survived, but he would suffer very vivid dreams and his dreams would leave him sometimes almost paralyzed, not really knowing what it was all about. His brain had been injured. He had suffered brain damage, going back to what I said yesterday. If you think of your brain as a hard drive and you shake the hard drive, all of the files would go all over the place, much like your brains. But when it comes to dreams, when it comes to what people think and believe they are receiving, the first option could be mental illness. The second option could be demon possession. The third option could be liars. The fourth option could be attention seekers. It could also be all four of those. We get emails from people that say they are receiving dreams and they give us long breakdown of their dreams. The Lord showed me this, the Lord showed me that. And I can't make heads or tail of it. If you think of Joseph's dreams, if you think of Daniel's dreams, if you think of others in the Old Testament who had dreams, when you read what they have been shown by the Lord, you can't understand it. That's why Daniel would have to receive uh, an interpretation from the Lord. That's why Joseph would have to be shown an interpretation from the Lord. Otherwise, you couldn't get it. But I think for today, for those of us which are saved, for those of us which call ourselves Bible believers, we are in no doubt that the Scripture is our final authority. And yet saying that, there is a minute chance that the Lord may reveal himself to someone in a dream. But not if you live in the West. We have the scriptures. We have many translations of the scriptures. We have concordances. We have our reference Bibles. We have so much material, which goes back to what I said yesterday morning. What more do you need to be shown from the scriptures? What more light do you need to, uh, do you need to receive? This book is dynamite. This book tells you how to live. This book tells you how to think, which is revolutionary. You tell someone about the gospel, that's fine. But you start sitting down with someone like a guy from yesterday 
and try and explain to him that you're told how to think. What would Paul say? Think on good things. Think on positive things. You're told to bring every thought uh, captive to the Savior. That's very difficult because we are still stubborn people. We're saved people, but we are stubborn people. So yesterday we looked at Matthew chapter 1. We looked at Joseph being the Lord's uh, soon-to-be stepfather. And he would receive a dream or two via the Holy Spirit about his wife's soon-to-be pregnancy. And he had the right, he had the option to put her to death. Because as far as he was concerned, she had been unfaithful. Of course, that wasn't the whole story. It wasn't even half of the story. And yet, if you get your hands on the the Jewish uh, Talmud, they believe that Jesus was uh, produced as a result of his mother being raped by a Roman soldier. When you speak about Jesus to people on the streets, there are so many views about him. This guy from yesterday suggested that uh, he never lived, suggested that what we believe is based on fairy tales, that we are imbeciles, so on and so forth. And yet, had he kept his mouth shut for just 20 seconds, I would have said to him, how about Philly the Younger? Was he a liar? How about Josephus? Was he a liar? How about the Talmud, written by unsaved, wicked Jews? Are they all liars? Why would they suggest that Jesus lived and died if it's all a fairy tale? There's much more material, there's much more fact surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus than anyone else in history. But people don't want to hear it. People want to reject it because the word of God says how men and women loved darkness rather than light because the deeds were evil. Go to Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew chapter 2. Let's continue looking at the New Testament's record of dreams, which incidentally, and one more time, if you weren't with us yesterday, are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, let's get the context from verse 1, please. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came a wise man from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. I remember speaking to some Muslims last year or the year before that about the worship of the Lord worshipping Jesus and they looked absolutely aghast at me when I would suggest such a thing and I said well Jesus is the Lord uh, Jesus is God he is the Lord and therefore he is worthy of worship no they say only Allah is worthy of worship but of course Allah simply means the God Allah if you go back to antiquity is one of many uh, false gods they worship Jesus he would accept the worship he would say over in John 13 you call me master and lord and so I am Thomas would go down in his knees and say, my Lord and my God. I mean, what more do you need? And here you got wise men, verse 1, possibly 3, pitching the Trinity, traveling from the east, which was unusual because people would normally travel to the east for the light, for truth, so-called. And they have arrived in Jerusalem, the capital of the world. And word, of course, will reach Herod, verse 3, of their arrival. And it says in verse 2, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, Technically, King of the Jews is going to be in reference to the second coming. Going back to Matthew 1, 23. And his name shall be Emmanuel, being God with us, being the branch, being the Lord is here. The Lord is there. So, on the one hand, you've got Gentiles, slightly ahead of the game, searching for the king, searching for the second advent. And yet, they're going to get the first advent. Where is he, Jesus, that is born? King of the Jews, for we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. One of my reference Bibles suggests that this star, which they saw, was an angel. 
and they followed an angel. I think it's more likely to be a star, a literal star that we see in the sky at night. But the belief was, from this particular chap, that it was an angel. And they followed this angel for over a year before they got to Jerusalem. And of course, when they arrived, he's not a baby. He's an infant. He's, he's, a, he's a toddler. He's 18 months of age, perhaps, no more than two years of age. Hence why Herod wants to know where are the boys that are up to two years of age. He's not a babe in a, in a manger. The babe in a manger is found in Luke. He is a toddler, no more than two. And they want to know where he is. You've got three men. You've got Gentiles. You've got Magis. You've got holy people, quote-unquote. You've got stargazers. You've got people that knew about Daniel. You've got people that are following the star. Mentioned back in Genesis. You've got people that had faith to get on, not necessarily horseback, but camels and travel a long way. And their faith would outdo all of the Jews combined. Look at verse 11, please. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because Jesus is a priest, he's a prophet, he's a king. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. They worshipped him, not his mother. They worshipped him, not his stepfather. This talk of the Holy Family, it sounds very interesting, very respectful but outside of the new birth no one or anyone no one or anything is holy and here they've arrived at the house not the manger and gifts are being presented of course to his parents because they are just that he's only around two look at verse 12 and being warned of god in a dream that they should not return to herod they departed into their own country another way you've got three men grown men perhaps in their 50s, perhaps in their 60s. You've got God, verse 12, warning them, singular, in a dream. Now, does he reveal himself to each of them? Does he reveal himself to the leader of the pack? We're not told. But once again, a dream has taken place, not a vision. And being warned of God in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way, which would suggest, number one, had they gone back to Herod, they would have been arrested, tortured, and perhaps put to death. Because they were told that when they found the Lord, they were to bring word back to Herod. So he could kill the newborn Christ, the newborn king. So the second dream has taken place. And it's from the Lord to at least one or three Gentile men. 13. And when they were departed, behold... The angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there, until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So it was possible, had they gone back, or it was possible, had they not left the area of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Israel, proper, that the young child... 13 could have been destroyed. And verse 13, and I keep saying this from previous studies, but allow me to say it again. 13 is synonymous with the devil. 13 is synonymous with witchcraft. 13 is synonymous with wickedness. And again, the angel of the Lord has appeared, being the spirit of the Lord, to Joseph in a dream. Go back to what I said yesterday, when Mary would receive a visit from the Lord. She got a visit via Gabriel. An angel, a created being, but when it came to Joseph, 
being the head of the family, being a type of Christ, if you will. He gets a visit via a dream from the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Arise, middle part of 13, and take the young child and his mother. There's also a picture there of faith. Yes, they were the parents of Jesus, but they too had to live by faith. God won't do everything for you. It's like that old expression, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Now, Egypt is a type of the world. When we get saved, we are saved out of the world. But here they are told to go back into the world. It's somewhat of a paradox. And be thou there until I bring thee word. This also could feed into the account from Revelation. I think it's chapter 12 from memory. How the world helps Mary or the world helps Israel. Mary, of course, is a type of Israel in the New Testament. And during the tribulation, the woman flees into the wilderness. Israel, of course. And the world helps the woman. The nations help Israel. And Jordan has been suggested. Petra has been suggested by some scholars as a place where the Jewish remnant will flee to during the tribulation. So here you've got Mary, Joseph and Jesus leaving Israel, going into Egypt, type of the world, picture of the tribulation where the believing Jewish remnant will flee for safety. And be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod, type of the Antichrist, will seek the young child to destroy him. So once again, it was possible that... The young child could have been destroyed, but the Lord stepped in, not in the way that he would do with Pharaoh and just drown everyone out. He would do it in a more simplistic way. 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my only begotten son. And once again, a prophecy has been fulfilled. Go back to any other holy book in the world that you can think of. Not one of those books have anywhere near the amount of scripture that we have or material to look at when it comes to prophecies and the fulfillment of prophecy. Also go back to the Lincoln account one more time. What he saw, what he dreamed about. Yes, it could have been demonic, of course. He wasn't a saved man, as far as we know, and yet he made one statement that he trusted Jesus for his for his saviour. He put his faith in the blood of Christ. Now, if that's true, then, of course, he's saved. His testimony is questionable. His wife's activities with clairvoyance, like Nancy Reagan's, is unfortunate. Like Hillary Clinton's is unfortunate. Like many uh, first ladies or former first ladies in America. But the man said he was trusting the blood. And if he meant it, he's saved. Why the Lord would show him such a premonition or a prophecy, why he would take the time to reveal such to Abraham Lincoln, we're not told. On top of that, it could have been based on his anxiety. He was a very restless man. He would walk around the White House at night, pacing up and down, pacing around the White House. He was a man with a lot of pressure on him. His country was fighting a civil war. And for several years, it was going against the North it looked like the south were going to win but here as i say the lord has appeared to joseph and the wise men to take action direct action don't put it off take care of it straight away because herod and co if they can 
will seek to destroy Jesus. Go down to verse 19, if you will. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. A slight switch has taken place. An angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. And if you have a new King James, or if you have an NIV, they have changed the entire wording. In fact, all of the new Bibles refer to such as an angel of the Lord. Very rarely the angel of the Lord, which when they do that, you lose the cross-reference. You can't work out whether this is the Spirit of the Lord or just an angel of the Lord. But here we've gone from the angel of the Lord, 13, to an angel of the Lord, verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, yet another dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, go back to the Holy Land, for they are dead, not just one, which sought the young child's life. Now, from memory, we have at least three Herods in Scripture. We have the first Herod, Herod the Great. We have his son, Archelaus. And we have another Herod who appears, Acts 24, 25, 26. King Agrippa. And these Herods were appointed by Rome. They were despised by the Jews. Much like... Um, if you lived in France during the Second World War, the Nazis would impose governments on such people, and that's why they were despised so much. And after the war, those men were rounded up, and uh, some were put on trial. Others got away with it. Some French leaders, and I'm thinking of uh, perhaps Chirac, another Mitron, uh, went from being a, uh, a fascist to a communist. Is that right? Or communist to a fascist? Crossed the street a few times never stood trial, was able to ride it out. But the French people, the Dutch people, the Italian people who suffered under Mussolini despised the leaders that Nazi Germany imposed on them. Much would be the same for the Jews under the first century, living under the first century, or living during the first century, I should say. They were forced to put up with people like Herod, who for many was a Syrian. He wasn't a Jew. For they are dead latter part of 20, which sought the young child's life, which once again suggests to me that it was possible, in a way that I don't quite understand, for such people to put Christ to death. He would say over in the Gospel of John that he has power, he had power to lay his life down and take it up again. He would say over in John 7 that his time hadn't yet come, but others' times, others' agendas, others' um, way of life, was always there. It was always the right time. It was always a relevant time for such to leave this earth. But the Lord's timetable was very much restricted and governed by heaven. And yet it does appear to me, based on this text, that they could have killed the young child had Joseph not taken immediate action. 21. And he arose and took the young child, his mother, and came into the land of Israel, so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He goes from Bethlehem into Egypt. He spends a period of time in Egypt and the Apocrypha writers come along and the Apocrypha writers suggest that during his time in Egypt he was doing great miracles. He was doing this, he was doing that. He was fixing up dead birds. He was fixing up 
uh, damaged birds. He was doing this, he was doing that. And there's quite a industry out there based on the apocryphal life of Jesus. But where the scripture is silent, leave it silent. It's like the church fathers. If you read some of the church fathers' writings, they take liberty with scripture. Because there are gaps in scripture, and the gaps are there for a reason, they sometimes, not all of them, but some of them, take it upon themselves to speculate as to what they think the Lord would say and do. And based on their speculation, based on their liberty, and abuse of liberty, I'd really, I should really say, they've been able to create a whole set of traditions which the Catholic Church have been more than happy to lap up, like Joseph Smith, like the Mormon religion, like Trinity appearing to Joseph Smith, which is, of course, it's ridiculous, but they believe such nevertheless. 22. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream. He turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. So once again, the Lord has spoken directly to Joseph. He hasn't consulted anyone in jury. He hasn't consulted anybody at the temple. He hasn't consulted the scribes and the PhDs. He's gone straight to Joseph, just a carpenter, which is going to picture the new covenant, which is going to picture the universal priesthood of the believer, which even to this day is a shock to people. People in organized religion hate the thought that those, those of us which are saved our priests and those of us which are saved don't need to be a part of a system. In fact, just yesterday, two gentlemen from Northern Ireland were speaking to one of the sisters and they were asking her what church she went to. They were asking her uh, what sort of fellowship she was a part of and I was listening in quite intently. It wasn't uh, overly hostile, but it went on for maybe 25, 30 seconds. And I said to myself, if they ask her again, I'm going to approach these two gentlemen in their 50s, and I'm thinking to myself, probably Calvinists, are you guys in Cambridge today to give out tracts? And of course, they would say no. So therefore, why are you more interested in what church this woman goes to than why you're not taking the time to give out tracts? Is it not more important to give out tracts? Is it not more important to get the gospel out? If she wasn't giving out tracts, I would suggest that they wouldn't have gone over to her they wouldn't have even asked her any questions about her salvation, but because she was giving out tracts, they wanted to know who she was and where she was from, which is just typical of those in organised religion. And I would say that those uh, guys from Northern Ireland, no doubt Calvinists, I may be wrong when I say that, but that's my, my own feeling, are in the same camp of Caiaphas and Ananias and those that the Lord would come up against during the first century. They didn't like Jesus because he hadn't been to their school. They didn't like Jesus because he hadn't been raised in their system. They didn't like the apostles because they weren't educated. In fact, they would say that these men don't know letters. These men aren't PhDs. Which goes back to the fact that we are all priests, spiritual priests, not physical priests. We don't dress up in uh, Halloween outfits. But the point is, a new dispensation is about to be born. A new way of doing things is about to take place and... The Jews in the first century were not ready for it, and people today are still not ready for it. So, Matthew 1, Matthew 2, <coughs> gives you three sets of dreams, two uh, different sets for Joseph, one in Israel, one in Egypt, 
and the third set given to the wise men in Israel. And those men acted on the dreams. They could have not acted on the dreams, which again goes back to what I said yesterday. It may be that we receive dreams and we can remember our dreams. And sometimes those dreams may not be from the Lord. It could also be that our diets can affect our quality of sleep, resulting in bizarre dreams, even nightmares. I remember years ago reading an account of an evangelist and for years and years he had awful nightmares like every single night and eventually he went to see his doctor and his doctor referred him to a specialist and the specialist said to him by the way what sort of diet do you enjoy what sort of foods do you like to eat and the guy said well it was a b and c and the doctor said to him can i give you a quick blood test gave the man a blood test and he said you're very low on vitamin e I mean, very low on vitamin E. And the doctor wrote him out a prescription, and within a week, two weeks, dreams are gone, nightmares had receded. He was simply low on vitamin E. Something as simple as that. And yet for years, this poor man was tortured as he slept. He thought the devil was on his case. He thought that the world was going to get him. And yet it was simply down to a vitamin deficiency. Go to Matthew chapter 27. So, number one, it could be mental illness. Number two, it could be demon possession. Number three, you could be lying. Number four, you may be an attention seeker. And it's always worth reminding ourselves that the quickest way to know whether or not the Lord is speaking to you is to go to the scripture. Matthew 27, there is one verse in Matthew 27, which is only found in Matthew 27. Look, if you will, please, at verse 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, Pontius Pilate, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Have thou nothing to do with that just man? I'm not a just man. I don't know anyone who's just. I know that Christ is just, and Christ, being the just, died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. When he was set down on the judgment seat, the most powerful man in Israel at that time, his wife sent unto him, probably via an aid, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? Don't get involved with that just man. Just man, good man, holy man, sinless man. Why? For I have suffered many things. This day in a dream because of him. Now, yes, he was just. But had Pilate listened to his wife, had Pilate acted on his wife's advice, like Adam would with Eve, had Pilate listened to his wife, had Pilate followed his wife's advice, Christ wouldn't have been crucified, which means we wouldn't have had any salvation. Which goes back to Lincoln one more time. Was the dream authentic? Was the Lord speaking to Pilate's wife? Perhaps, perhaps not. Was she speaking the truth? Yes, she was. He's a just man. She's suffered many things. She's almost being torn up, going back to when Daniel was detained by Nebuchadnezzar, and the king was unable to sleep that night, tossing and turning. His conscience got a hold of him. So there's two ways to look at verse 19. The first way, you may suggest that the Lord is warning Pilate, via his wife, not to get involved with a just man. But if that's the case, what would have happened if Pilate had Pilate 
decided to act on his wife's infallible, quote-unquote, advice. What would have happened if Adam hadn't have listened to his wife and taken of the fruit? There would have been no original sin. There would have been no saviour, which then feeds back to how the creation account have worked out. We'd have maybe 100 billion people living on the earth today because nobody would have died. You can't really fathom it, can you? Which goes back to the new earth, which goes back to New Jerusalem, which goes back to the hypothesis put forth by some that during the millennium, people will be taken from the earth and put into outer space. I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but I know why people say that, because people are going to multiply on a mass scale. At the same time, it could be that the devil has appeared to Pilate's wife. Incidentally, according to tradition, she was a secret Christian and whispered in her ear, that he wasn't to be put to death. Which, again, if Herod, excuse me, if Pilate had listened to his wife, would have resulted in Christ not being put to death. There's a third option. It could be that the Lord, in a very gracious way, is warning Herod and Pilate, because Herod and Pilate would work hand in hand to put Christ to death, along with the religious elite, not to get involved with his death. And yet again, in a way that we don't quite understand, the free will of man, the sovereignty of the Lord, are working together. So it could be the Lord warning her. It could be the devil interfering with her. It could be, as I say, she is a secret Christian and she doesn't want her husband to get involved with the death of an innocent man. Do unclean spirits always lie? Do unclean spirits sometimes tell the truth? Go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. There are two accounts in Acts that come to mind which deal with unclean spirits, demons, devils, call them what you will. And there's one account in Acts chapter 16 that is very interesting. Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things this night in a dream concerning him. Absolutely true. He's a just man. Don't get involved with him, and yet Christ would come to die for the sins of the world. It's a paradox, and yet Satan could have been working in the background to thwart the will of the Lord. Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, look at verse 16, if you will. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. Absolutely true. These men are the servants of the devil? No. These men are the servants of the Most High God. You've got a girl, a young girl, dim-possessed, 16, making her masters a lot of money by her soothsaying, clairvoyancy, tarot cards, palm reading, what you will, call it what you will, and yet she's speaking the truth. These men are the servants of the Most High God. Don't get involved with this just man. I've suffered many things this night in a dream concerning him. She's right. And this statement is right as well. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So, you got a girl, young girl, a Gentile girl, possessed, unsaved, and the Spirit is speaking through her. And the Spirit is speaking the truth. We know you, you are Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. Have you come to torment us before the time? Absolutely true. Holy One of Israel, have you come to torment torment us before the time? Absolutely so. 18. And this she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned 
and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, when I went through Acts the year before last, I was perplexed then and still am as to why Paul put up with this for many days. But he did. I guess he's a patient man. And it says how he was grieved. And he turns and says to the spirit, not the girl, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. I spoke to a guy in uh, Cheshire last week, a Kabbalist. I'll discuss him more this coming Sunday. A very mixed up guy. He spoke about an exorcism that he was a part of at a house somewhere in England. And he said to me, there was an unclean spirit in a house. And somebody was called to exorcise the house, to drive the spirit out of the house. And he said to me in an almost whispered voice, there's power in the name of Jesus. An unsaved man, a Kabbalist, and he said to me, there's power in the name of Jesus. I thought, you're right. Unsaved? But he's speaking the truth. Came out the same hour, and that girl was set free. Of course, the question should then be asked, did she want to be set free from that spirit? Would would, uh, would, uh, Lady Gaga want to be set free from her unclean spirit? There's an interview, quick footnote, that she gave to a guy called Jonathan Ross, a very well-known British journalist. It's on YouTube. Watch it sometime. And he's speaking to her. And he says to Lady Gaga, I can't remember the conversation. And he blasphemes. And he uses the word Lord. And when he says Lord, she puts one hand, so one, yeah, one hand over one eye. It's done, it's done in a split second. And I thought, what a spooky clip. He says, oh, L-O-R-D. And her hand goes right up on one eye like that. And when he finishes, her hand goes down again. She's possessed. She's spoken about it. It's on record. She even names the spirit that lives inside her. Check it out. YouTube. Jonathan Ross interviewing Lady Gaga. One more scripture and I'll close. Acts chapter 19. There's power in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. And yet to hear such from an unsaved person is incredible. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 13, if you will. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. God has put his word above his name. We adjure you, we command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preacheth, certain vagabond Jews, unsaved Jews, unbelieving Jews, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. They saw Paul doing his ministry, preaching the gospel, healing people, and they thought to themselves, We want some of that, like Simon the sorcerer. We want to get in on the action. We like what we see. We are witnessing people being saved. We are witnessing people being set free from unclean spirits. We want some of that as well. We want some of the action. 14. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. So you've got a group of Jews, uh, Jewish, Jewish leaders, a chief priest, sons of such, which are going around trying to counterfeit what Paul was doing, like over in Corinth, like speaking in tongues, trying to counterfeit the true speaking in tongues, Acts 1, Acts 2. And that's why Paul would say at the end of Corinthians that if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him or her be anathema maranatha, which would suggest to me that 
people in Corinth, carnal people, saved people perhaps, were speaking in tongues and were cursing Christ at the same time, which goes back to James's account about the tongue being unruly and impossible to tame. 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? So once again, this spirit speaks the truth. This spirit doesn't say, who is Jesus? This spirit says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And I like to think that when we go on the streets and we get the banner up and people come over and clash with us that they see Jesus in us. They don't say to themselves, who are these people? Who are they representing? Because if we are saved, according to Romans 8, the spirit of God lives within us. He was not inside of us. We're not saved. Jesus I know, of course, because he created them. And Paul I know, of course, he was a minister chosen by the Lord. But who are ye? I don't know you people, you unsaved Jews. You guys would write the Talmud. You guys would suggest that Jesus was a bastard. You people would crucify your prophets back in the Old Testament. You people would crucify the Son of God. And yet the Son of God loves you, died for you, prayed for your forgiveness. Paul would tell you in in, uh, Romans 11 how they are beloved for the Father's sakes. That's why we can't hate the Jews. But at the same time, we can speak the truth to them. And at the same time, we can warn them about what they are rejecting. 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out to the house naked and wounded. They messed with the powerful spirits. They messed with the devil and the devil overcame them, which goes back to Jude, which goes back to the account of Moses, which goes back to Lucifer arguing with Michael about the body of Moses. And the scripture says, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, this powerful archangel, coming up against Lucifer, a cherub, slightly higher in rank, doesn't say to Lucifer, be quiet, I'm going to bind you. He passes it back to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. And yet when Jesus comes up against the devil, or the devil comes up against Jesus, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Jesus has no problem, no problem dealing with the devil. And yet some of us think we can take him on and win, and we are simply kidding ourselves. So that they, latter part of 16, fled out of that house naked and wounded. How humiliating. But the spirit, first part of 16, leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. They've been completely defeated. So they ran out the house, wounded and naked, cut, bruised, could have died. And yet the Lord allowed their lives to be spared. Because it says over in scripture how he came to save those that were lost. He came to seek and to save those that were lost. He didn't come to destroy people's lives, but to save people's lives. Verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. There's power in the name of Jesus. Let's hold up the name of Jesus. Let's hold up the name of Jesus. Let's get the gospel out. Let's preach Jesus, not ourselves. Yesterday, when we arrived in... uh, Cambridge I saw two Jehovah's Witnesses very smartly dressed standing to the corner of us but tucked away out of sight and I thought come on gentlemen come into the streets let's hear what you've got to say let's hear your message and they had this uh, trestle table not sure what they call it little book stand magazines and I thought you're tucked away people can't see you let's hear you preach and I watched them for maybe an hour there's no gospel there's no message there's nothing and we've got a banner Luke 13.3, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And it draws people over, which is the whole point of it. If we had a sign up saying Jesus loves you, they'd just walk straight past you. You've got to be confrontational, but not crude. 
And I watched these two JWs, no message, no gospel, no nothing. And had I gone over to them, they would have said, well, come to the Kingdom Hall and we will help you out. We will speak to you. We will introduce you to the truth. We are still receiving truth from Jehovah. It's not what this is about. Here, the name of Jesus, 17, was magnified. We preach Jesus, not ourselves. 2 Corinthians 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. You confess your sins to the Lord, not others, but you may uh, need to confess your faults to one another. But 18, the first part, and many that believed came. That's what saves you. And confessed after they believed and showed their deeds. So you've got justification in the sight of men, justification in the sight of God. When a man or a woman believes in the Lord, he sees it. That's justification in the sight of God. Romans 3, Romans 4. When a man or woman gets saved, their works are seen in the sight of man. That's justification in the sight of man. James chapter 2. The Catholics could never get that right. The Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox could never get that right. They say you're saved by faith and works. No. You believe that, you go to hell. You're saved by faith, which produces works. You're not saved by faith and works. James 2, one more time, is a picture of someone who is saved producing works in the sight of other people. Romans 3, Romans 4 is a picture of someone who's got saved and has been witnessed in the sight of God. Faith alone, which then produces works, which is then seen by other people. That's what verse 18 is all about. No more and no less. So I think I will start to wrap this message up and just say one final time that, yes, we all have dreams, but we don't always remember them. Most of our dreams are insignificant, mean nothing, and we very quickly forget them. Our diets can affect our quality of sleep, resulting in bizarre dreams, even nightmares. You may experience an incident. You may be almost killed like that priest. You may suffer brain damage. You may have awful nightmares. Judy Garland would have awful nightmares. Judy Garland couldn't sleep at night. She would attempt to go to sleep and her head was spinning. She was a drug addict. She was an alcoholic. And what she would do was, number one, leave the lights on all night. Number two, leave the music on all night to drown out the spirits. She couldn't sleep. And she died at the age of 49 on a toilet in South London. I don't mean to be crude, but that's how it was. She was no more than six stone. I'm not sure what it is in kilograms or pounds. Let you work it out online. But she was tiny. She was a small woman anyway. She'd gone from being a heavy woman to a small woman. And she was tortured, tormented. She made a big name for herself in The Wizard of Oz. She had the word at her feet, but she could never conquer drink and drugs. And as a result, she was tortured. Tortured, tortured, tortured. Experienced awful dreams like the priest that I mentioned and, like I say, would die in 1969 on a toilet in South London. She had no money. She was bankrupt. And I believe it was Frank Sinatra who paid for her funeral. She was flown back to America, where I think 10,000 people lined the streets to watch her uh, coffin be driven to the church to be buried. As far as I know, she wasn't a Catholic. Maybe wrong when I say that. But she is another interesting person who gained the world and lost her own soul. One more story, Mario Lanza, the great American opera singer who influenced Jose Carreras, uh, Placido Domingo, Luciano Pavarotti, was a big star in the 40s and the 50s, and he had a problem, Mario. He had a problem. He was a big boy. He liked his food. And if you were a Hollywood actor in the 50s, they didn't like you to be too heavy. 
and he tried to go on crash diets. He tried all sorts of things to get his weight down, and what they would do was put him to sleep. Now, this was something new for the 1950s, and it didn't always work. And he would sleep for a week, wake up, lose a few pounds, but not enough. And the pressure was on Mario to get his weight down. It didn't work. So he flew to Italy, and they put him to sleep, but they couldn't wake him up. He died. But before his death, he would be put to sleep. Vivid dreams, nightmares, the old brain churning, the old hard drive going round and round and round. He suffered depression, leading into mental illness, a tortured soul. And yet in his day, he was a huge star. He influenced the three tenors. And even today, there are, uh, there are other opera singers, other well-known opera singers around the world who look up to Mario. Soon after he died, his wife died. Soon after his wife died, his sons died. There's something in that family which is bad. We call it bad blood. So three people, two Americans, two Hollywood stars, had the wrong type of dreams. And of course, Lanza was a Catholic, had a requiem mass. There was also talk that the mafia were involved with his murder, but I don't believe that. I think it was a quack doctor. They bodged his, uh, uh, his operation. They gave him too much uh, medication. He died on the table. And like Judy, he was flown back to America to be buried. So, you know, had you read his accounts, had you followed his career, you may have thought that what he was experiencing with his dreams was perhaps from the Lord. But it wasn't from the Lord. It was from his own imagination. Going back to what we see on a regular basis, what we hear and see, it stays within us. And when we sleep at night, our memories start to regurgitate what we've seen, what we've heard, and it mixes up with other stuff, and we, you know, we become very confused. So, I think on that uh, account, I will conclude this message and say that if you do receive dreams, don't be too quick to be of the opinion that the Lord is speaking to you. Check the scripture, because the scripture is our final authority, and I will do a message this week called the word of god looking at the word of god in depth because the scripture is really all we need you may be mentally ill you may be possessed with an unclean spirit you could be a liar you could be an attention seeker it could be all those things just because you have dreams just because you think the lord has spoken to you like ellen white like joseph smith like the popes doesn't mean that such is the case maybe like Pilate's wife what you have been shown is true but it doesn't mean it's legitimate. The devil is a liar. He would say to Jesus, I will give you the whole world if you bow down and worship me. And the Lord doesn't say to the devil, you're a liar. Because it was the truth. He could have given the whole world. He's called the God of this world. So this is where we're going to be so careful when we get into dreams and visions. Because many times what we read about and hear about may be so. It may not be legit. It may be illegitimate. It may be a dangerous counterfeit. And that's why you need to check everything in light of scripture. So this will be part three to our look at dreams and visions. And like I said last time, when it comes to my understanding of such accounts as to what people believe they've seen, it could be down to mental illness. It could be down to demon or devil possession. They could be liars. They could be attention seekers. In fact, just yesterday, a lady came over to us. I would suggest she was around 50 from Spain, had been saved three or four years, no more than five, was very intense. And I was uh, looking at her eyes very carefully. 
And I had some views as to her background, and maybe I'm out of order to speculate, but my opinion was, my feeling at the time, and 24 hours later would be that she came to the Lord later in life. She came to the Lord from a troubled background. I won't spend too much time uh, speculating about her background, but she's the sort of woman that would claim to have received uh, a vision or two, would claim to have received a dream or two. And this is the downside of coming to the Lord later in life. It's always preferred to come earlier, but that's not always possible. If you come later to the Lord in life, you accumulate a lot of baggage. And it's like I said also from I think part one of this three-part study that 100 years ago, people didn't see as much as we do today. In fact, just this morning I sat down and went on to one of the uh, major websites, which uh, is a news website, of course, just scrolling through the news, looking at the terror attack from London uh, the day before yesterday, and some very graphic photographs, very graphic video stills. And, you know, I've been saved a long time, no spring chicken, and I'm just skimming through this one website, looking at their accounts as to uh, what was taken during the uh, terror attacks. And some of those pictures will stay in people's minds forever. Some of those video stills, some of those video segments, which were shot on mobile uh, mobile phones will stay in people's minds forever and I do believe that most people when they go to sleep will have at least one dream but they may not retain it they may not remember it but their minds were churning throughout the night playing back the day's events and for some of those people they'll wake up with the belief that almighty God has spoken to them has appeared to them I remember some years ago I got an email from a friend of the ministry, a so-called friend of the ministry, and this friend of the ministry said to me that they'd had a dream, and the Lord had showed this person a dream, and the dream was along the lines of that a devil had been assigned to me, an unclean spirit, and this friend of the ministry wanted me to know that this devil was very interested in me, and that this person was praying for me, that this devil would be removed and this person wanted to uh, explain that I was under some kind of an attack. And it went on for, or the email, it was quite a long email, just outlining this demon, this devil, which had been assigned to me, no doubt due to Lord's permissive will. And I read the email and I just discarded it. No doubt the person who sent me the email was uh, trying to be helpful. And yet at the same time, that person had also come to the Lord later in life and had accumulated, no doubt, a lot of baggage over the years. I may come back to that account shortly. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 3, look at verse 1, please. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And you've got a 400 year period of silence. No visions, no prophecies, no nothing. 400 years of absolute silence, and then bang, Matthew chapter 1. John the Baptist arrives, a cousin of the Lord, and he says, repent, change your minds, change your hearts, shape up. The Lord God is on his way, and it's my job to prepare a people for the Lord. But for 400 years, there's been no revelation. There's been nothing whatsoever, which goes back to what I said last time concerning some of the church fathers trying to deal with gaps in the scripture what happened from the age of 12 to the age of 30 concerning Jesus of course what was he doing where was he traveling 
Who was he mixing with? And some of those church leaders and some uh, mischief makers would put pen to paper and would tell you what they thought Jesus was doing. Some people believed that he went to India. And Joseph Smith believed he went to the Red Indians or the Native Americans, I should say. I was criticised a few years ago for using the term uh, Red Indian. I was told it wasn't PC, so I had to correct myself and say a Native American. But everyone's got a view on Jesus. When it comes to the scripture, this is the ultimate view. Three one again. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, the type of Christ, mediator. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Old Testament, there was no open vision. Go to Hebrews chapter 1 again. So the Lord had different ways to reveal himself to different people. And most of the time, back in the Old Testament, he would do so via dreams. And sometimes via visions. And to really drive a point home, he would send a man of God into the community to uh, speak to people. To say that he'd been sent on a mission. And when that man arrived at his location, he would live very simply. He would do so to shame those that were living very comfortably. And he would reaffirm a vision. He would reaffirm a dream. God, who at sundry times and in diverse Spanish spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Pretty clear. Different ways, different times. He would speak verbally. He would speak through a dream or vision. To the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, physically of course, later written down in the New Testament, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, different planets, and perhaps our solar systems within solar systems, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, out goes the mass, out goes Mary, out goes any church. In fact, some guy came over to us yesterday, a Catholic guy. I would suggest he was in his early 20s, a very pompous chap, and was very much in love with his church. Idolized the Eucharist. And I made the case to him that, first of all, only Christ can save anyone. Number two, no baptism could save anyone. Paul would tell you that he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And I told him that every church, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Greek or Russian Orthodox, must be in submission to the scripture. Never the other way around. And he didn't want to hear it at all. And he, co he continued to drone on about his beloved church, which cannot save him. And this piece of scripture tells me how Christ purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, like mission accomplished, being made so much better than the angels. Out goes Moroni, out goes Muhammad's account of Gabriel out goes any angelic uh, accounts of an angel being superior or that we can worship angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You get saved by believing on a name and if you haven't believed on the Lord's name he won't know your name and that also feeds back into the book of life. Is your name in the book of life? If your name isn't in the book of life it's probably because you don't know the name of the Lord. Did you call on the name of the Lord? But two, hath, has, 
in these last days spoken unto us by his son, making the case that God's final revelation, God's final account to the world is in Jesus Christ. He that hath the son hath life, he that hath not the son of God hath not life. So you are saved by believing the Lord Jesus Christ and you are condemned by not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Luke chapter 1. So, visions, dreams, for a period of time were the norm, but even back in Samuel's day, even back in the days of Eli the priest, they were drying up. End of Malachi, going to Matthew, there was no one receiving any revelation for 400 years. The Jews were very much in need of a revelation, but the Jews were very much in bondage to tradition. They'd been in uh, Babylon for 70 years. They worshipped their tradition like the Catholics do. And they thought they were the Lord's people. And to their shock, when the Lord turned up, he said to these people, you don't know me, you don't know the Father. My words have no place in you. You may be Jews in a physical sense, but you're not Jews in a spiritual sense. Your hearts are dead. And they must have thought to themselves, who does this guy think he is? We go right back to Abraham. We have an unbroken chain, like the Catholics would have you believe. Our popes go right back to Peter, which is incorrect. But even if it was the case, so what? It can't help you. I mean, the Jews could say that they go right back to Abraham. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But most Jews are unsaved. Most Jews don't even believe in the Old Testament. In fact, Jews today don't even have a temple. They have no priest system. They have no sacrificial system. They are very much wandering. They are very much in darkness. So dreams and visions, like I say, were the uh, way that the Lord, for the most part, would decide to avail himself to the world. And we looked at Matthew chapter 1 concerning Joseph, the Lord's stepfather, who received a dream or two via the Spirit of the Lord. And he was told very clearly that Mary was a chosen vessel, that she would give birth to the Savior of the world, that he was to marry her, that he was to come beside her. And he did just that. But at the same time, or just before uh, Joseph would be receiving his dreams, you've got an account from Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So I thought this this morning. I thought it's interesting because when I read the New Testament, especially the latter part of the Gospels, especially the Epistles, I see people that get saved, I see people that grow in grace, and I see the Lord choosing ordinary people to do great works. But what I really see, which really uh, impresses me, is that the Lord chooses people that were not part of organized religion. They weren't part of organized religion, except this guy. This guy, Zacharias, verse 5, of the course of Abia, or Abia, his wife is a daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So this man would be the exception. He's a priest, and I seem to recall reading somewhere that in the first century, there were around 20,000 priests that lived in and around Jerusalem. Some retired, some in active service. They weren't all Levites. They weren't all in the temple. They weren't all sacrificing animals. Some of those priests were administrators. Some of those priests worked with Herod and Pilate. Some of those priests were messengers. It was a big operation. You've got millions of Jews going up to the temple every year from all over the Roman Empire, doing so to uh, offer their sins or to, I should say, offer a sacrifice for their sins. Hence why there was a need for so many priests. And yet for today, we have no physical priests. We don't need physical priests. Like I keep saying, we are 
our priesthood of the Lord. We are a spiritual priesthood. And yet, to listen to some people, you would think that we are still back in the Old Testament. What church do you go to? What's the name of your pastor? Have you thought about becoming a Catholic? How about joining the Jehovah's Witnesses? How about becoming a Mormon? We have the Melchizedek priesthood. We have the Aaronic priesthood. We have the Blessed Eucharist. We have the Blessed Queen of Heaven. We have this, we have that. How about Jesus? Do you have Jesus? Do you have the scripture? Well, we don't need Jesus. We don't need the scripture. Or, yes, we have Jesus. Yes, we have the scripture. But that's not the main focus of our religion. We have tradition. In fact, this guy from yesterday was going on about the scripture not being the final authority. And he went on about Luther, who taught Sola Scripture. And I said, but how about Papias? How about Polycarp? In fact, I said to this guy, have you heard of uh, Papias? Never heard of him, he said. I saw Papias was a well-known church leader after the Apostle John, as was Polycarp, as was Irenaeus, as was um, uh, Justin Martyr. And this guy offered himself as some great experts on Catholicism, no more than 25. And yet, the minute I put the church leaders to him, which these guys worship, he'd never heard them, or so he would suggest. And I knew that he was playing uh, games with me. I'm pretty sure he'd heard of some of these guys. But I said, listen, everyone, everything should be in, submi- it should be in submission to the Scripture. The Scripture is a final authority, not the church of any kind. Let's keep reading on. Look at verse 6, please. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So they weren't sinless. They were like uh, Abraham and Sarah, up in years, good, upright people. And Paul would tell you that the law wasn't given for the righteous. It wasn't given to people like ourselves sitting around this table this morning. We can't keep the law. You try and keep the law. You try and keep the spirit of the law. Good luck to you. It's going to be tough. Even the law of Christ is very difficult. And yes, you are expected to uh, serve the Lord. You are expected to obey the Lord. Jesus would say from uh, John 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And yet you see you get on. You try and keep the commandments for 24 hours of a day or 12 hours of a day. Very difficult. They were both righteous before God. So externally, they were pretty decent. Internally, they were pretty decent, but not sinless. Walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, impeccable, but not in the sense of being perfect. And yes, you can be impeccable, you can be decent and upright, you can be almost spotless, but never perfect. Seven, and they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. So, Zacharias, verse five, is a priest, and it's fallen to him to go into the temple to offer burnt offering, burnt sacrifice, burnt incense, verse nine, which was quite a privilege for a priest to be able to do. His wife hasn't got a child. His wife has lived with a stigma for many years of not being with child. And along the way, someone's been praying, no doubt Elizabeth, no doubt Zacharias. And yet they probably said to themselves, we've been praying for 25 years, 30 years, and it hasn't come to pass. Let's quit praying. But they didn't quit praying. They carried on praying, which shows me up because I don't pray as much as I should pray. I mean, like on my knees. Of course, I pray throughout my day, but I mean on my knees. I mean, just sitting down for 15, 20 minutes. Tough. Eight. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. He's on a rotor of some kind, and he goes into the temple to do just what I say, to offer burnt incense, very much an Old Testament, 
tradition, custom for the day. Our prayers are types of uh, incense, which you read about from uh, Acts chapter 10, like Cornelius praying, and his, his uh, prayers are heard in heaven, like uh, a sweet fragrance. There are no, um, there's no burnt offerings, there's no incense for the new covenants, because our bodies are the temple of the living God, and as such we offer our bodies to the Lord. Ten, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So they're outside praying, he's inside offering up this incense, this burnt offering, this Old Testament tradition, like I say, 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. An angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. Going back to Joseph, being able to witness the angel of the Lord, being the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. And here an angel has appeared to him, and he's standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Not the left side, but the right side. And I would suggest this is the first time that Zacharias would see an angel. Again, I've been saved 15 years. I've never had a dream from the Lord. I've never seen a vision from the Lord. I've never seen an angel of the Lord. Not that I know anyway. I've had many dreams. I've had many strange experiences. But as I sit this morning, I can't think of any supernatural revelation that came my way and i would suggest that this account would be the first time that zacharias would see such a thing look at verse 12 and when zacharias saw him he was troubled and fear fell upon him absolutely what else could you do what else would you do if an angel appeared to you and this angel would be male this angel would be something to behold this angel i would imagine would be around six feet tall, although I may be speculating when I say that. But this angel would have just dazzled him, would have just shocked him, and he would have felt a sense of trepidation and also fear. Because to be in the presence of the Lord, or one of his angels, one of his ministers, is something which you can't really comprehend. When I first got saved, I was on cloud nine for a long time. I was very much in awe of the Lord. I was very much overwhelmed by the Lord and his word. Of course, as you grow in grace, as you get caught up in the world, you have to be careful because you can, you can become dry, you can become lukewarm, you can become blasé. And that's a dangerous thing because once you become dry, once you become blasé, once you become indifferent, you knock yourself out of service when it comes to the things of the Lord. And I think a lot of people that we see on our daily travels may perhaps be saved, but have hit problems in their walk with the Lord, and they've just thrown the towel in. They've gone back into the world. And if you listen to some holiness people, have lost their salvation, which is ridiculous, or most Calvinists will say they were never saved to begin with, which is also ridiculous. Look at verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Don't be fearful, Zacharias. Why? For thy prayer is heard. It took 25 years, but it got there in the end. And thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, not a daughter. And thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Call his name Emmanuel. Go back to the Old Testament. Call the kid Ishmael. Call the kid Isaac. 
There are many people back in the Old Testament that were named by the angel of the Lord. Jesus, like I say, would make it clear to Hagar and Abraham what the name of their child would be. You've got Jesus naming the great, 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 so on and so forth, grandfather of Muhammad. How about that? 14. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. And they did. And yet some were very much against John the Baptist, because he didn't fit into society. He was this uncouth character. He was the sort of guy that walked down the streets, and if you saw him, you'd cross the streets. He'd be rough and ready. He wouldn't fit in with the Joneses. He was the sort of chap that got under your skin. He would probably go into your home or shout the letterbox, repent. He would pull you up. He would give you a hard time. He was a man's man. And yet Jesus would decide to choose him to baptize him, not Caiaphas, not a Levite, not even Zacharias. He would choose John the Baptist, this very unusual character, which again goes back to my earlier statement that for the New Covenant, the church system, the religious system, organized religion is unheard of. This is the only account in the New Testament that I can think of where somebody in organized religion is going to play a part in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here... And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now, when we get saved, the Holy Spirit lives within us as does the Father and the Son. So in some ways, this is very reminiscent to the Old Testament, like David would plead with the Lord not to take the spirits of the Lord away from him concerning his kingly anointing concerning his kingdom concerning his rule and reign not concerning his salvation on top of that this man being John will be great in the sight of the Lord and he was would neither drink wine nor strong drink so he would abstain from alcohol which is always preferred and on top of that would be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb, a very unusual child. And many, verse 16, of the children of Israel, shall he turn to the Lord their God. So when Jesus was born, before he was born, we are told quite clearly that the children of Israel would turn to the Lord their God, picturing the fact that Jesus is almighty God. A beautiful uh, belief, a beautiful statement, which is lost on, uh, on so many people. 17. And he should go before him in the spirits and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist is very similar to Elijah in appearance, in his conduct, in how he would speak. And Elijah was a very unusual character. They would also dress the same way. John the Baptist worked alone and yet when Elijah went to glory Elisha would replace him so what you could suggest from that if you will is that when John the Baptist left the earth Jesus would replace him that doesn't quite fit doctrinally but it's near people have said in the past that Paul in some ways is a type of Christ that is also an interesting statement and yet doctrinally doesn't necessarily uh, have to be 100% so, because Christ, of course, is God, and he's also man, whereas Paul was only a man. 17 again, and he shall go before him 
in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elisis, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. No mention of the Gentiles, no mention of the church, because the church hadn't yet been, been born. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Fast forward to the, the, uh, the tribulation. You've got two witnesses. You've got quite possibly Elijah and Moses. Some have suggested Enoch and Elijah, but we can suggest for sure that Moses is going to be one of the two witnesses and they will arrive on the earth before the second advent. And Moses and Elijah, perhaps the two witnesses, are going to once again turn the hearts of the Jewish remnant to the Lord. They're going to prepare the people of Israel for the Lord's arrival. Had the Jews received Jesus as a group the first time around, he would have come back, Acts chapter 7, and initiated the thousand-year reign of Christ. There would have been no church age. We would have no uh, need to meet in Cambridge because we would never have existed. You would have had the thousand-year reign just for, just for the Jews, just for the children of Israel. But, of course, they didn't receive him. They would reject him. And as a result, we got grafted in. And as a result, we, the body of Christ, are the people of the Lord for today. 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Now, he should have known better, but like most men, like Adam, like Abraham, like yours truly, was weak. When he would uh, come into contact with an angel of the Lord, being Gabriel, in verse 19, he would question what he was told. Like Abraham, Adam was told, several trees in the garden, do what you want with those trees, but this particular tree, stay away from. Don't take the fruit from that particular tree. His wife gets seduced by the serpent, um, and she's able to deceive her husband. And of course, you know the rest. We fall into sin, or our parents fell into sin, and as a result, we suffer the consequences. Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. It's also fair to say that due to... The 400-year silence. This guy, Zacharias, from uh, 5 on and on, was perhaps in need of extra light, was perhaps living under the Old Testament, was perhaps a little dry. Perhaps he was very good going through religion, going through the services, going through the rituals, like a lot of people that are religious are accustomed to do. When it came to the simple things of the Lord, it uh, didn't always... Warm his hearts, he was very mechanical. This is something which we have to be mindful of. 19. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. I stand in the presence of God. I permanently stand in the presence of God. I have been sent from heaven like I was sent to see Daniel to reveal this to you. And to show thee these glad tidings. Such great standards, great teachings, great truths. And behold, verse 20, Thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And that was made time after time uh, by the Lord in regards to the Jewish people. You don't believe me? My words have no place in you because you're not of my father. You of your father the devil. This guy seems to have been pretty upright. Like I say from verse 
5 and 6, pretty decent, and yet he lacked faith. He lacked what Gabriel had told him, and he knew that Gabriel was an angel. He knew that he wasn't just some ordinary guy breezing into town. He knew that this was an angel, but like most people, he lacked the basic faith, and as a result, will suffer the consequences. 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. Where is he? He's been in there for ages. What's going on? Has he been raptured? Has he been kidnapped? What's going on? Has he had a epileptic fit? 22. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. When it comes to dreams, like I said at the beginning of this three-part message, Matthew's Gospel and Matthew alone details the dreams in Scripture. And when it comes to visions in the Scripture, Luke and Acts alone outline such. And the writer of Luke is the same writer of Acts of the Apostles. And when he came out, eventually, he could not speak unto them. Why? Well, he's been struck with dumbness. Twenty. And they, the people, perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. On top of that, maybe his countenance had somewhat changed, like when Moses came down from the mount. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. He's using his hands to try and explain what has taken place, and yet is unable to do so because he has lacked faith and has suffered the consequences. When we lack faith, we miss out on a blessing or two. You are told to have faith like a child, and sometimes that's not very easy. Folks come over to you on the streets, and they try and lock horns with you. They try and show you up, and they throw stuff at you, and you have to respond in an adult manner. You have to try and deal with their questions as best as you can. But when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to a relationship with the Lord, when it comes to a prayer life with the Lord, when it comes to a a relationship with the Lord, you just take him by faith. You just trust him at his word. And you approach him as best as you can as a child. 23. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my approach among men. At last, I'm going to be a mother. I'm up in years and I've waited for many years. But as a result of her husband's unbelief, you can have a nine-month period of pregnancy. He can't speak. He can't uh, be much help to her. And it's only when John is born that he get his tongue back. And you could suggest that's a good picture of the new birth. But I'll stop it there for today. And to my surprise, this will be a four-part message at least. And perhaps even a five-part message. But what you've had this morning is an account of the word of the Lord being precious. What happens when the Lord doesn't speak to people on a regular basis? How uh, people can fill in the gaps, take it upon themselves to uh, write what they think is so and explain what they think is so and as a result cause a lot of confusion. You can have views, you can have theories, you can have a a speculative view, you can suggest this or that, but when it comes to theology, when it comes to doctrine, be very careful, because if you go beyond the word of God, and people follow you, you can create some kind of a uh, a sect, a clique, and that's what we don't want to be guilty of. We're not here in Cambridge to push a system, to push a ministry, we are here to get people saved, we are here to preach Jesus.
and if we can uh, continue to do that until we go home next week praise the lord but i think i'll close it there and uh, pick it up next time in acts chapter 9 okay so this will be the final look at dreams and visions and uh, from part one we looked at six uh, dreams from the gospel of matthew there are no dreams found in uh, john luke's gospel gives you a couple of uh, visions which we looked at yesterday concerning zachariah but when it comes to the new testament dreams and visions are pretty rare because jesus christ would appear on the earth and what he didn't tell you you don't need to know and that's why I like to make the case from Hebrews chapter 1, how God has already spoken to us in the past tense through Jesus Christ. No one can add to him. So let's try and conclude today. And if you will, please turn to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 26, back in the Old Testament. And I want to just spend a few moments this morning, if I may, looking at what the scripture says about visions. Because like I say, this would be one of the main methods that the Lord would choose to appear to people. Visions, dreams. And sometimes he would arrive in a physical sense. But more often he would send a holy man, a messenger from heaven, to reaffirm one of his earlier messengers. Second Chronicles 26, look at verse 1, please. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the room of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. After that, the king slept with his fathers, excuse me. Sixteen years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jacola of Jerusalem, and he had that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. So this guy was a good king. He was rare, because most of the Old Testament kings were wicked. Most of the Old Testament kings would uh, not only be wicked, not only reject their prophets, but would cause the people to go into greater sin hence why when christ arrived most of israel were in unbelief look at verse five please and he sought god in the days of zechariah who had understanding in the visions of god and as long as he sought the lord god made him to prosper so you're gonna have good visions you're gonna have not so good visions you're gonna have uh, godly visions and ungodly visions you're gonna have the truth you're gonna have falsehood and most people like to think that god still speaks to them and others, which, if that is the case, you need to go to Scripture to be 100% sure as to whether or not the Lord is speaking to you. But the latter part of verse 5, in fact, verse 5 again, and I will just comment on the middle part. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, something which we can still do today, who had understanding in the visions of God. For today, we go to the Scripture, like I say, for all of our information. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Nothing much has changed. You want to grow in grace? Seek the Lord. Walk with him and read his word on a daily basis. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14. So dreams and visions would be the Lord's uh, preferred option to reveal himself to mankind. And thankfully he did just that. He could have created the world and sat back and allowed it to run its course until it burnt out. Which is what evolutionists would have you believe. Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah 14, look at verse 13, please. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you a sure peace in this place, or in this place. So false prophets back in the Old Testament, false teachers for today. Nothing unusual with that, of course. 
most of those that offer themselves as Christians are false Christians, are from cults or sects. In fact, as we left the train station last night, there was a huge billboard outside a Cambridge uh, train station. And I'm in a huge billboard, and it spoke about a Bible and a tent. I didn't quite get the meaning of the advert. And at the bottom of this uh, billboard sign, it said, sponsored by the Christadelphians, a Christian cult. And I thought to myself, they got money for that, have they? Well, of course, it's a gimmick. And just for the record, the Christadelphians don't believe in hell. They don't believe in the Trinity. And they don't believe that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. Our Lord God, 13. Behold, the prophets say unto them, children of Israel, you shall not see the sword, neither shall have famine, but I will give you a sure peace in this place. What the Lord is telling us isn't the case. It's going to be peace and joy all the way, which of course would be a great lie because the uh, captivity was just around the corner. Verse 14. Then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing of naught, and the deceits of their heart. Going back to four options as to why people say what they say. Number one, they could be mentally ill. Number two, they could be possessed with an unclean spirit. Number three, they could be liars. Number four, they could be attention seekers. And I'll say it again, that for those of us living in the West... If we want to believe that the Lord speaks to us in visions and prophecies or dreams, then where does that leave the scripture? Because Christ is God's final messenger, Hebrews 1, 2 and 3. What more light can God give us? On top of that, why would he give us additional light outside of scripture? Is the scripture not enough for us? Sure, if you live overseas, in the middle of nowhere, perhaps he may give you a vision, perhaps he may send you a dream. But even that, I'm not overly sure about. But the latter parts of verse 14 pretty much says it all. And a thing of naught and the deceits of their heart. It comes from their heart. The heart is wicked. They may be saved and yet the heart is still wicked. They may be saved and yet want a following. Going back to cults, going back to sects, going back to groups within groups. Going back to what church do you belong to? Going back to where do you worship? Going back to who are you? Not why are you here? Not uh, how are the track's going? Not uh, when did you get saved? Not are people getting a blessing by seeing you here. It's like, what church do you go to? Where do you worship? People want to categorize you. 15. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, concern the prophets that prophesy in my name. And I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. He will kill them. And he will do what David would do with Goliath. He will take their own swords in a spiritual sense and use them against them he will cut them down with their own tools their own weapons of uh, warfare and it goes back to the heart it goes back to words we're saved by believing we are saved by confessing our faith in christ if you will and we are damned by not believing we are damned by not confessing christ so we are justified by our words and we can be condemned by our words and here these false prophets for the new testament false teachers are going to be damned by their lies by their disinformation by their corrupt minds and wicked hearts look at verse 16 please and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of jerusalem because of the famine and the sword and they shall have none to bury them them their wives nor their sons nor their daughters for pour their wickedness upon them we had an instance in manchester a couple of weeks ago an islamist uh, went to a pop concert killed excuse me murdered 22 people and uh, blew himself up 
went straight to hell, and yet what was of interest to me is after that took place, a couple of days passed by, and the Islamic community in Manchester said they were refusing to bury him. Interesting. And here you've got the same sort of thing. And they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. It's one of the worst things to see somebody who's been cut down and just left for dead, not buried. We had a guy die a couple of weeks ago called uh, Ian Brady, a very wicked man, a child killer who never confessed, never came clean. And he worked hand in hand with Myra Hinley, who became a Catholic in jail. She died a few years ago and he died a couple of weeks ago now. And there was a lot of talk at the time about people not wanting to bury him. And I thought, well, I'd bury him. I would bury him. He's in hell anyway, but I wouldn't refuse him a funeral. I think he's, you know, he's entitled to be buried. I don't think he should just be left on the ground for the animals to devour. It is interesting when people make a judgment about someone like him. They say, well, I wouldn't bury him. Just leave him in a field somewhere or put him in a box somewhere or what have you. And yet by judging him, they judge themselves. They've been able to pass judgments on a wicked child killer, which he, you know, he was, and he's in hell now, so don't worry, he's getting his comeuppance. But they can't or won't judge themselves. They are more than happy to judge somebody else, but they won't judge themselves. And I, I thought to myself, I'd have no problem burying him. Uh, put him in the ground. It doesn't matter anyway. His soul is burning in hell. Go to chapter 23. But to not put someone in the ground, to refuse to bury someone, I think it's uh, a sad thing. But it's the ultimate way, I guess, of showing contempt for a wicked person. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, look at verse uh, 16, please. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. Going back to the heart issue again. And people say, well, my heart tells me it's okay. You know, my heart says it's going to be okay. My heart is of the opinion of this and that. And yet, could you be wrong? Well, I think you could be wrong. Yesterday, six Jews walked over to us and three left, three remained. And I got talking to these Jewish men. I say they were in their 20s. One was from Manchester. Uh, one was from London. And we got on to the Old Testament. We got on to Jesus, of course. That's why we're here in Cambridge. And I said to these Jewish gentlemen, but could your tradition be wrong? Because it's based in the Talmud, which is a very questionable source. And I said, well, the Catholic Church have their tradition, and they are certainly wrong. And the guy said to me, so the Catholics aren't Christians. I said, no, they're not Christians. They don't believe that Jesus Christ's blood is all that is necessary for our salvation. And I spent a few minutes explaining the difference between the two. But I said to these Jewish gentlemen that they could be wrong because they are trusting in their traditions. They are trusting in their hearts. They are trusting in their fathers. They are trusting in their religious systems, not the scripture. And here's the same kind of thing. 16. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own hearts and not out of the mouth of the Lord. So you've got two groups of people. You've got those that are from the Lord and you've got those that are from the devil. Jesus would say that you of your father the devil in reference to unbelieving Israel. And yet they would turn around and say, that he had a devil, that he was an unclean uh, individual, that he wasn't from the Lord. And I think if he wasn't from the Lord, who uh, would be from the Lord? Turn to uh, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Look at verse 17, please. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. 
And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So you've got one guy, Daniel, Jeremiah, who were faithful prophets of the Lord, living and dying during very difficult times. They were receiving revelations from the Lord and what they would receive, they would later write down. And here we are some thousand years later, reading their writings and getting a blessing from such. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. He'll still give you that today. James says, if you want wisdom, pray for it. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Over in Second uh, Timothy 3, Paul says that the man of God is thoroughly perfect, equipped unto all good works. He says that scripture is all that you need. Over in Acts the Apostles, it speaks about the Bereans going to the word of God and checking it out. The scripture seems to suggest very clearly to me that if you're saved and if you believe this book, you have all that you need. But again, if you live outside of the West, if you live in the middle of nowhere and you are searching for the Lord, it is possible. It is possible that what Cornelius would experience from Acts chapter 10 may happen again. But more likely, the Lord will send someone to preach the gospel. There may be someone in a village next door or a town down the road or a city not far away who is saved. And the Lord may send someone along to further discuss and further enlighten such people. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts of the Apostles is an account written by Dr. Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And like I say, when it comes to visions, Luke's Gospel and Acts are the places to go. Yes, there is one account, Matthew 28, when Christ came up out of the tomb and the women saw at least one angel and it says how the keepers shook for fear. But by and large, the place to go for dreams will be Matthew and visions will be Luke. But in Acts of the Apostles, there are at least uh, two, if not three, visions. And I want to look at just one today and ask you to go to chapter 9, if you haven't already. And in Acts chapter 9, look at verse 10, please. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. So you got a picture here of a man called Ananias, a man saved, a man who was part of this local community in and around Damascus, being modern-day Syria. He's called a disciple, which is a term for those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, going back to the, the uh, term for an apostle, meaning somebody who saw the Lord and was sent by the Lord. But anybody who is a believer is a disciple. And here this man, Ananias, has seen a vision, he's seen a glance. It may have been through a dream, it may have been as he was going from A to B, but he saw a vision, he got a, a message sent to him from the Lord, and he says at the latter part of verse 10, Behold, I am here, Lord, what can I do for you, Lord? 11. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, the one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. I would say that Paul, around this time, referred to here as Saul of Tarsus, verse 11, was in his 30s, no older than 40. And I would suggest that all of his life he was an upright kind of Jew, a decent kind of Jew, like the gentleman from yesterday. Went to synagogue regularly, went to the temple at least three times a year, was... A decent sort of guy, religiously out, you know, outwardly religious, but internally he was unsaved. On top of that, Jesus would say from John 16 how someone like Saul of Tarsus didn't even know the Lord, which is kind of a startling statement to 
digest. Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, which did exist, incidentally, in Damascus, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. So Paul, not yet called Paul, has been knocked off his horse. Verses uh, 4, 5, and 6. He's blind physically, and he's praying. And he's really praying, maybe for the first time in his life. He's gone through his entire life thinking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knows that account when Jacob was wrestling with the angel all night. And for the first time in Paul's life, he's really having to pray. He doesn't know what's going on. His whole life has come crashing down. Almighty God has appeared to him in the person of Jesus. And he's praying, not to mention probably fasting. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in. So he's been praying, he's blind, and he gets a vision. And he will get several visions throughout the Acts of the Apostles. And putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Not his salvation, not his anointing. If you think of that account, again, from John 20, when Jesus would appear to the apostles, he would breathe on them, and that was a down payment. That was part of the giving of the Holy Spirit, and that was also the beginning of their salvation, because up until that moment, although they were, born, although they were saved, they weren't born again. They had an imputed uh, righteousness, but they weren't born again, I don't think anyway, until John 20. And by Acts 1, Acts 2, they got the full commission. But here Paul is blind, and he's waiting for Ananias to come to give him a sight. Look at 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man, how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Lord, I know this man. He's a dangerous man. He has authority from the chief priests, 14, through the way of uh, letters, documents. We would say today, arrest warrants. All that call on thy name. You can be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Going back to the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. We all got saved by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore once we know his name, he knows our name. And he tells us over in John 10 how he calls us by our name. It's so important that we know the name of the Lord. That we believe in the name of the Lord. And if you speak to Jewish Messianic believers, they say, well, you shouldn't call him Jesus, you should call him Yeshua. And they go back to the Hebrew movements, and yet, if you go to the New Testament, if you look at the Greek, Koine Greek, never once is Jesus called Yeshua. I'm not against calling him Yeshua, but the point is this. Most people that are a part of this Messianic movement never got saved by calling on the name of Yeshua. They got saved by calling on the name of Jesus, and then later on, drifted into such a movement, like the Calvinists, you weren't saved a Calvinist. You weren't born again as a Calvinist. You became a Calvinist. You drifted into Calvinism. But here, Ananias is fearful, which is natural. And yes, if you are saved, you will be fearful. But to be perpetually fearful is problematic. And he's slightly not arguing with the Lord, but he's trying to find out what's going on. A bit like Abraham would do with the Lord back in uh, Genesis. Lord, if there are 50, will you spare the city? If there are 45, will you spare the city? If there are 30, will you spare the city? Trying to buy time. But here Ananias is trying to get more light from the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong when it comes to seeking more light from the Lord. Trying to get closer to the Lord. And we do that, of course, by the scripture. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Don't worry about it, Ananias. Just get going. The word gospel starts with G-O, go. Just go. Get the gospel out. Just go, Ananias. For he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me, chosen for service, not salvation, to bear my name before the Gentiles. Jehovah, Elohim, Jesus, and kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, Jesus will suffer like nobody has ever suffered. In fact, these gentlemen from yesterday, three Jewish gentlemen, were happy to to discuss scripture with us for a little while. I took them to uh, Isaiah 53, and I read those verses about Christ being whipped, tortured, suffering for our sakes. And I knew what they were going to say, that it wasn't about the Messiah, it was about Israel. But of course, it doesn't fit with the text, and I spent a bit of time showing them why. And I took them to uh, Psalm 22 and Zechariah chapter 12. Who knows? Seeds were planted. But Jesus came to suffer like nobody has ever suffered. And Paul was chosen to suffer like nobody would ever suffer. And part of Paul's remit, 15, would be to go to the Gentiles. And he did. Kings, and he did. And of course, the children of Israel, which he would certainly do. And they hated him. They despised him. And yet, like anyone who was saved, he would push on because time was of the essence. And that part of, of 16 again, for he must suffer for my name's sake. Going back to anyone who is saved, anybody who does anything for the Lord will have to suffer for the sake of the Lord. Just standing on a street corner cause you to suffer. We never know who's going to come around the corner. And yet most of the people that we speak to on the streets are not only um, harmless, but also confused and are looking for light information and a reason to believe a lady came over to me yesterday and she was from the Baha'i faith and I've never met a Baha'i before or Baha'iist and I spoke to her for a few moments couldn't get any sense out of her and uh, talked about sin and salvation to her didn't really register with her like the Jewish guys in fact I said to the Jewish guys how do you guys get your sins forgiven what has Jehovah done for you what atonement has he provided for you and they said, well, we just ask him to forgive us, like every Yom Kippur. And I thought, but how does that work in a courtroom? And I went down the court analogy, as I always do, that if you find yourself in a courtroom and you say to the judge, I'm sorry, Your Honor, it's been a bad day for me, or it's been a bad week for me, he won't say, that's okay, my son, off you go. He will deal with you. And that's how the Lord will deal with unsaved, self-righteous people. And I said, but God has made a way for us to be saved through the Lamb of God. And they just looked at me like they'd never heard that before. And I told the, the Baha'is woman the same thing. And these people go away thinking about what they've heard and hopefully digest what they hear and hopefully go on to get saved. So I think I will leave it here in Acts chapter 9. And like I say, there are some other visions found in the uh, book of the Acts. But I think for the purpose of looking at visions in the historical sense and dreams in the historical sense, we get some understanding and I'll say one last time that for anybody who wants to be saved, it's very simple. You just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you just cry out to him and he will send someone along to you. He may perhaps, just perhaps, reveal himself to you through a dream or a vision, but more likely through his word, especially if you live in the UK. Because there are churches on every street corner. There are Bibles in every Christian bookshop. And failing that, you have the internet. But what he won't do is give you fresh revelations. He won't go beyond what he's already given you. Because what else do you need to know? You're told to be saved. You're told what happens if you don't get saved. 
You are told what happens when he comes back. You are told what awaits those that love him at his return. And you are told what happens to those that don't love him at his return. What else do you need? I mean, this book has got over 700,000 words in it. If you can't find him in here, you won't find him anywhere. In fact, Martin Luther said, never mind going to Israel, he said, if you want to uh, meet the Lord, if you want to uh, get close to the Lord, you'll find him in the scripture. There's much truth in that. So I'll close it there and uh, leave it for today and pick it up next time looking at another subject.